This is Milestones. I'm Angelica Beener. I'm so excited to bring this podcast to WBGO Studios and welcome the WBGO family to the show. Here, we take deep dives into milestone moments in music and culture during landmark years. On today's episode, acclaimed DJ, producer, and recording artist DJ Spinna joins me to discuss Stevie Wonder's 90s debut, Jungle Fever. As the soundtrack to Oscar-winning director Spike Lee's provocative and brilliant film, Jungle Fever places Wonder squarely in the era of New Jack Swing and hip-hop. Together, Spinna and I discuss Wonder's soundtrack work throughout the decades, Spinna's awe-inspiring relationship with the singer-songwriter icon, and how massive shifts in music and culture most always find Wonder leading the path. I hope you enjoy. I am so excited about this episode because I get to talk about my favorite musician, the eighth wonder of the world, known as Stevie Wonder. And for this episode, we're going to be talking about his soundtrack work, but in particular, we're going to put a spotlight on the Jungle Fever movie soundtrack, which was written and produced by Wonder himself 30 years ago next month. I couldn't have wished for a better guest today. I don't know many people who love music the way he does. Um, my special guest is an incomparable DJ, producer, recording artist who has been an essential force in music and the culture since the 1990s. His remixes of artists from Donald Byrd to Eddie Kendricks, Roy Ayers to Mary J. Blige to Stevie Wonder himself have garnered worthy global acclaim. He is a fixture in the soul house dance music sphere, known notably for his celebrated remix of the Shauna Scoffrey dance hit Days Like This, among so many others, an aficionado and a deeply respected commentariat on everyone from Jay Dilla to Michael Jackson. You have seen him in the Spike Lee directed documentaries Bad 25 and Michael Jackson's journey from Motown to Off the Wall. And speaking of the king of pop, my guest has been producing and performing the preeminent music event, Soul Slam, which celebrates the music titans, Michael Jackson and Prince for almost 20 years. He is Lee's resident DJ and musical director for his epic BK Loves MJ celebrations. If you've never been, you are missing a life altering experience. And his wonderful event, is a global sensation and the ultimate Stevie Wonder listening experience, second only to seeing Wonder perform himself. You know you're onto something when Stevie Wonder shows up to your Stevie Wonder tribute. So there, there's that. Um, the two have shared the stage several times, including in 2012, when my guest opened up for the United Nations Message of Peace concert. He is the host of Here to Their Radio on Apple Music, and he is blessing our quarantined lives with his journey events on Twitch TV. I'm so honored to welcome the one, the only, DJ Spinna. <laughs> wow. Now I can take a breath. <laughs> <laughs> Greetings. Greetings. You know, there's so much to say about you. You have such an illustrious career. So, um, you know, I wanted to round you out a bit without taking too much of our hour, but you are such an incredible uh, human being and artist and just a, 
again, just this music, this premier music aficionado. While a lot of people have that, you also just have this passion, this love of music that just oozes out of you that I think is a rare thing. So wow. I'm, thank I'm you. <laughs> thank you. Pleasure yeah. to be here. Thank you. So um, before we get into the film, and again, we're talking about the Jungle Fever soundtrack um, today, but I, I, before we get into that, I would love to, well, actually, do you know, we met about 15 years ago. I just was thinking, because I was thinking about it and thinking about coming on to talk to you. And I was like, wow, I think when I met Spinner, he was working on a Stevie Wonder remix. Yes, it was for My Love Is On Fire from uh, Time To Love. Which that is album. his last album, right? Last studio album. Last that studio album. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I remember that. And I just, I mean, I had been to your CV events, I think, before I actually met you. But when I met you, you were working on that. So I wonder if you could talk to us about how did you become introduced to Stevie's music? And then how did you become introduced to Stevie Wonder, the person? <laughs> well, like how does that happen? <laughs> I know it's miraculous and, you know, unforeseen for sure. Never thought in, in a million years that when I was growing up listening to Stevie that I would actually meet him and work with him, yada, yada, yada. But it started at home. It started at home with my, my dad in particular, who was into Motown and soul. And my first recollection, you know, I started playing records, like physical records since I was two, three years old. And Blowing in the Wind was like the first single that I came to um, familiarize myself with, with Stevie. And then Stevie, Stevie Wonder on Sesame Street, you know, being mesmerized by his appearance there. My mom telling me he's blind and wondering you know, all kinds of wonders, pun intended, like how is he, he able to sing? And I'm looking through his sunglasses, trying to see what his eyes are doing. So I was, you know, I was kind of mesmerized by him really early. And then when Songs in the Key of Life came out, that was like an event. It was a listening event. And unlike any other album package that I've ever seen up until that time, it was epic it was like uh you know you had three rec three uh, three albums set and a bonus 45 that came with it and a booklet that you could actually read and get more information like you we never experienced anything like that before um and i even noticed early uh during those recordings those mid-70s recordings how the songs segued into each other on on beat and I asked him about that at one point. We'll get into that later. Um, and he kind <laughs> of explained. <laughs> yeah, well, there, there, was, there were a few situations where I was able to, you know, get into his brain. Um, but yeah, and then fast forward. So I became an avid Stevie Wonder fanatic from that point on. You know, every time a new record came out, I would buy it, you know, study it. And in college, my college days in particular, the music became really personal with me, um, dealing with relationships and people. A lot of the songs that he sang about spoke to me, like Looking for Another Pure Love, for example, you know, heavy song. Um, and, um, you know, Wonderful was born, Celebration. And I actually encountered Stevie Wonder 
on the phone first in 2000. The party's actually, this is the 20th year anniversary. Really? Of wonderful. This is the 20th year of, of wonderful. Now, mind you, we, we had done a really small, intimate version of what wonderful would become in 99 at a space called Baby Jupiter in Lower East Side. And it was me, Bobito, um, Erica Hamilton. Back then, she was known as E-Love and uh, Cool Marv. And we just collectively got together and played some music. We all shared our love for Stevie. And me and Bobito would then later on join forces. Um, shout out to Keystar, Kita, my wife, who I mean, put, the, put this big production on. But in the midst of that, we also did these two mix CDs called Wonder Wrote It. Yo, I owned... <laughs> When I got my hands on Wonder Road and I still have it somewhere. Like I have like all these stacks of CDs on the, on the spindle around Mm -hmm. the house and I still have them. They don't play anymore because they're all scratched up because I played the shit out of both of them. Like over and over and over again. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to cut you off, (laughs) but you just took me back to just some of the things that I'd never heard before you know like just other artists covering stevie and the little interludes and you know you had grover from sesame street on the on the effect and all of that kind of stuff it was just so dope i'm sorry go ahead (laughs) (laughs) yeah so you know we dug real deep and put together these two underground um cult following mix cds and we actually did cassettes as well and pushed them through fat beats and they made their way overseas and then Wonderful, you know, the hype around Wonderful was built around that as well. And I spoke to, so here's how the first connection goes. Um, the f- first party was at Filter 14, first Wonderful. And then in 2001, it was 9-11. 9-11 happened. And we thought it would be fitting to do Wonderful a second time after 9-11 to, as a healing for people. Because we felt like, um, you know, that event obviously was tumultuous on a lot of people's spirits and New York City on a whole. And doing it a second time would, you know, kind of give some, some, uh, you know, comfort for people. So we did it again. And at that event, at the end of it, Bobito had cut out early, like he always does. I stayed to the end. And Edwin Birdsong showed up at the end of the event. Edwin no. Birdsong, Edwin Birdsong shows up. I didn't meet him. I didn't know him yet. So I met him that night. And he's like, Stevie's on the phone. He wants to talk to you. So I'm all nervous. Get on the phone. And somewhere in that conversation, he brings up the Wonder Road It CD. But I panic. <laughs> oh sure right i, I panic because i'm like uh am i in trouble he so he was like yeah i want to i heard about the cd i want to check it out i want to hear it so i wasn't really sure if he was curious but like, he's a pretty hip dude like you know he's he's in touch with what's happening you know he's he has you know uh kids that are our age and he's he has a radio station so he knows what's going on he knows about mixies or whatever but on the legal side, I didn't really know what to expect. So 
at that point, I think at that point, uh, volume two, Wonder Road, it was was out, and we decided to kind of sl- stop, you know, stop pushing it. Um, but you know, nonetheless, I was happy to meet him. Still nervous about that situation, but very happy to meet him. And uh, a few years later, the the physical encounter happened. So there was. Okay, there's another there's another part to this. So there was this uh performance that happened at the Beacon Theater. It had to be around 2004. Mm-hmm. Um it was one of those performances, those events to support artists, writers, publishing. Can't remember exactly what but Roberta Flack was on the bill. It was a bunch of singer-songwriters and Stevie was on this bill. Was it like an ASCAP thing? I think it was an ASCAP thing. Okay. Never been an ASCAP. That sounds that sounds right. Um, and but Edwin Birdsong was at this event, so we reconnected. He remembered me from you know meeting me earlier, and he was like, "You want to meet Stevie?" I was like, "Yeah." So the the event's over. He jumps in in my car, and we rushed down to um Gramercy Park area to a restaurant that they that the entourage went to. And he gets out the car, he's like, I'll be right back. He went into the restaurant and never came back out. No. <laughs> Are you serious? Never came back out. But a family member came out of the restaurant and introduced himself to me and was like, you know, basically trying to figure out what, what I wanted. And we met and it turns out he was a fan of mine as a as a DJ producer. And at that point, Days Like This was huge. Or it, you know, it had come out that came out in 2002. So this is a couple of years later, and the record was already an anthem. So when I introduced myself and told him that I made that record, he was like, Oh, I know who you are. But I still didn't meet Stephen. I didn't meet him. That night. That was- night. Didn't meet him. Oh, but he we, but we kept in touch. And then uh, I want to say it was 2004. There was another concert at the Apollo. And Richie Havens was on this bill. It's my first time ever seeing him live. My only time seeing him live. And it was amazing. And Stevie was on this bill. Wow. He performed as well. And the gentleman, Mark James, that I met, the family member, was at the event. He got us backstage, me and my wife. And we I finally met him and we took a picture together and that was life-changing oh my god he was so happy to meet me like he was because you know by that time the parties were really gaining a lot of traction and he, you know he had heard about it and it was amazing and uh i remember that night i also backstage i met johnny kemp too he was back backstage oh how dope is that yeah so this is 2004 Five, five, four, four. four. It was two thousand four. It was a year before a time to love. Right. So upon meeting him, you guys started working together pretty soon after. Pretty, pretty quickly. So that's a funny story too, because he was calling me, leaving me messages, and I didn't know. I didn't, and I hadn't checked my messages. And Mark James hit me. He's like. Stevie's trying to get in touch with you. What's up? And I'm like, word? And I checked my voicemail 
and I heard, I, I recorded it. I still have that message. <laughs> I still yes, have it. exactly, exactly. Yeah, so he was like, Vincent, it's Stevie. Listen, how are you? I'm trying to get you to do a remix for a song from A Time to Love. Please call me back. And then when I finally got on the phone with him, he was like, you don't know how to pick up your phone, huh? <laughs> Oh my God! Who gets cursed out by Stevie Wonder? Like, crazy. Yeah, it was it was nuts. Um, When you found out you were missing calls, I just gotta stay here for a second. When you found out you were missing calls from Stevie Wonder, did you panic? Were you like, oh no, like what if what if I can't get in touch? I felt super whack. I felt whack. (laughs) Yeah, I felt really really stupid. Like, Fair enough. Of Fair all enough. of all calls to miss and not to pick up, you know. Right. And, and more than one at that. Right. It makes for a great story, though. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> You're the only person I've shared this with so far. So. <laughs> oh my goodness! I'm so honored. I'm so 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 honored. I think my my first time meeting Stevie, I'll never forget. Um, it was a show at I think it was the I think it was at the Garden. Yeah, I think it was at th- that theater in the garden, the smaller theater. Yeah. I'm like 1920. It's like 99. I'm an intern at ASCAP. And I'm at this event. I don't know if I was there through ASCAP or if I was there through my mom. I think my mom was working on it or something. But I knew Stevie was going to be there. And I knew Faith Evans was going to be there. And wow. yeah, and like Faith was, this is 99. So she had released her second album by then. But I was like a Faith Evans junkie. You know what I mean? Like I felt I memorized every riff, every run, every breath, every her cursing on the record on the fade out. Like I just I was so obsessed with her musicianship and her um, one of my best friends from high school used to do session work with her, used to do like um, references and stuff like that Mm -hmm. uh, with her. And she was this incredible vocal arranger. Her arrangements alone, just her, her backgrounds. I was obsessed with her as a musician and as an arranger. So I meet Faith. She's so lovely. And you know, I ask her, can I take a picture? Of course, she takes the picture with me. She's got on a hat, no makeup, just totally unassuming, still takes the picture with me. You know, she was just the sweetest human. And I was like, you know what? This 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 day is is great. Like I don't need anything else, you know. Today, if I if I this this is this is a highlight, right? But then Stevie Wonder comes out for a sound check, and he comes out on the stage like he's coming out like on a platform that's like, I guess on wheels or something like that. He's he's coming like he's he's like on the stage, and then he's on a platform on the stage, and he's moving forward in that like double dolly spikely effect thing I'm sitting in the audience there's like five people in the space and I'm watching Stevie Wonder just come to me like the end scene of Malcolm X and he's playing giant steps wow right like he's just like warming up just like playing giant steps and my these are my two favorite musicians ever of all time Stevie and Train period end of story I'm like my favorite I'm meeting my favorite who's playing my favorite. Like, what is life right now? <laughs> you know, and I was just like, it was crazy. So anyway, afterwards, you know, I'm able to come up on the stage and, and meet him. And I would meet him several times after that. But I'll never get that first meeting, Spinner, because 
I'm, I'm there and I'm like freaking out. And I said, you just, you just don't understand. And he goes, yes, I understand. Oh, that sounds like something he would do. Yep. <laughs> right? <laughs> I was like, he's like, but it was so funny. He like matched my tone and everything. And it was so, it was so funny. And he just, you know, warmed up the, the mood and, you know, it was great. So that's my little Stevie Wonder story. It's nothing like yours, but um, over time I would, you know, get to meet him through different avenues and stuff. And it's, it's never, you don't get used to being in his company. I mean, nope. ha, do you at this nope, point? Nope, 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 nope. I've seen him, been with him so many times, different situations, and every single time feels unique, special, and unbelievable. Like, you, you still can't believe it. You still Someone can't. as powerful as him, as he, and all of his accomplishments and accolades and the recordings and everything, you're just like, wow, how, how? You know, but part of it, too, is you, he makes you comfortable. You know, like when, like when he meets you and he does silly things like that, that's his way of kind of breaking the ice and letting you know, you know, you can chill. Like, I'm just a regular a regular cat. But when you step outside of that and you think about everything else, you, you get a little shook. You're like, yeah, he's he's like us, but no, 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 he's not really like us. No, he's, he's superhuman. He's exactly, superhuman. exactly. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's like, he's like us, but like, exactly. I could, I could not have said it better. So, um, okay, so, uh, so I guess we can sort of segue into uh, some of the film stuff because we're here to talk about Jungle Fever, the Jungle Fever soundtrack. Um, the film is written and directed by Spike Lee, and it's just so great that you're my guest because you have connections to both Spike and Stevie sort of being tethered to these two beacons, you know, in their respective, you know, fields. But um, yeah, so it's written and directed by Spike Lee, comes out in June of 91. And Stevie's soundtrack is, comes out almost simultaneously, comes out in May a couple of weeks before the film drops. And it's a drama starring Wesley Snipes and Annabella Sciorra, two huge stars of the 90s. And Ossie Davis, Ruby Dee, Lynette McKee, John Turturro, and this incredible performance by Samuel L. Jackson. And then I believe it's also Halle Berry's film debut. And the film explores, you know, race relations and interracial dating and also themes of like, you know, because this is 91, you know, crack, you know, the community yep. and all this kind of stuff. And so Stevie, who's used to writing about social themes, you know, that's he's like the preeminent artist activist hybrid. Um, it, it made sense to me anyway that I don't know what Spike's reasoning for, you know, other than like um, being a, who doesn't want Stevie Wonder to do the soundtrack to their film, but but I would also imagine that because of the themes in the film, you know, um, that Stevie would be a, a, a great person to, to do it. But this is not Stevie's first uh, soundtrack, right? So when did you, so the first soundtrack that I know of is The Secret Life of Plants. This is 1979, it's a, a documentary, um, produced by this cat who directs documentaries for I think National Geographic and it's literally about plants and this idea or this concept that plants have feelings. And right. so Stevie does this soundtrack. Now, when did you first hear plants? Because 
I feel like, and but see, you're a Stevie head. And even me as a Stevie head, I didn't get into plants until maybe the nineties, to be honest. I don't think I heard it before like 95. Right. Um, I remember seeing that album in my neighborhood record store in Cron Heights in 79 and not being too excited to get it. Mm. And when I finally did get it, it had to be in the late 80s. And it was quite experimental to me. Um, I definitely grew to appreciate that record a lot more as I got older, Um, especially from the production standpoint, because he, he was always ahead of technology. Like they always gave him, he was always on top of the latest synthesizers and recording techniques. And I learned that that album is actually, he was the first one to use a sampler. So when you listen to, um, what is it? La, 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 outside my window. Outside and you hear window. that little, you hear that little uh, squishy thing on the, it goes, that's a sample. No kidding. That's a sample. And he, you know, there's a, and he also has race babbling on that album, Ooh. which to me is kind of like a proto techno Euro dance record all day. Like there's no refuting that. There's no, you know, it's, it's a electronic dance floor record. So within him composing this film, he was able to explore different realms of different genres you know he has classical on there he has electronic music on there he has the typical love ballad with seven year love someone you love which is amazing um it's an amazing album it's actually um it could be one of his best if people were open-minded to think of it in that way because it's so different and he to me that album is like Commons Electric Circus. Mm, mm-hmm. It's like the album that you take chances on to try some different things. It's not your, you know, it doesn't fit the, the typical mold that everyone would know you for. But when you really get into it, it's an amazing record. From wow. Beginning to, from beginning to end. I mean, so many things I never thought about until you just said it. First of all, I did not know that that was a sample on that record. And, you know, to also, I think this is a good moment to um, pause and just really give a shout out to Malcolm Cecil, who I didn't know had passed away until you told me, I think a week ago. Yeah. Um, So for for our listeners, do you want to just give a quick overview of who he was um, in as far as TV Wonder? machine a creative machine well in 1970 stevie heard this album tonsils expanding headband which was produced by robert margoleff and malcolm cecil to i want to say they're english guys and the sounds that emanated from this album reflected a lot of what stevie heard in his in his mind and in his dreams 
and he basically employed them as co-producers to produce what would be known as Stevie's golden era, classic era albums from Music of My Mind to Talking Book, um, Fulfilling This, and uh, Inner Visions. Um, And I think they did do some overseeing on Songs in the Key of Life as well. There, There is some engineering work there. Mm-hmm. But at that time, Stevie definitely wanted to move forward and take things on by himself. Uh, and they had this studio, which were which was an all modular synth. A um, bunch of synthesizers put together. If you look at the artwork for Brian Jackson and uh Gil Scott Herons, one of their albums. Let me look that up real quick. They're actually sitting inside of Tonto. They're sitting in the studio. It's the one with all those crazy looking synthesizers and keyboards yes. with, the, with the with the plugs and the cables. Yes, yes, yes. Is that um? It's not Winter in America. No, 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 no. It's not Winter. So it's the later one. Um, I'll tell you right now. Okay. I'm gonna tell you right now, but yeah. So they, you know, they, they, they also worked with uh, the stair steps, the five stair steps, known as the stair steps in the '70s. They worked on Ozzy Brothers. They did the album with Fight the Power and Sensuality. What? Yes. So when you, so you, you can actually hear a correlation. Like if you listen to, uh, think about "For the Love of You," the yeah. synth line that do 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 do. That's Stevie, you hear that on Stevie records. Totally. You hear the sound, you hear that. So they were able to bring the best out of Stevie and push him to perform. Like they're the ones that got him enraged on living for the city. Mm. They they basically pushed him and they were able to make, bring that, bring out the best, but he had, it was like a kid in the candy store being in that, in that studio, in that environment, being able to come up with all these sounds that, Till this day, cannot be copied because of that unique synthesizer setup that they had. Right, it was custom. Right, I was gonna say it has like a patent, so to speak, a, a unofficial patent on that that whole sound. Yes. So, then, oh, you found it? No, I'm looking for it right now. I'll tell you right now. Uh, yeah. So they had a unique sound, and 1980 is the album. Mm-hmm. Gil Scott here in 1980. They're sitting inside of Tonto. Amazing. Um, yeah. And, and and actually, check this out. So they, I learned that they, um, you know, Stevie had long stopped working with them for, for years. And Spike was aware of how long it takes Stevie wanted to deliver albums. So he got he got he found them for jungle fever in order to complete it and engineer the record and deliver it to motown on time you're kidding me what yep they engineered that album i did not know that oh that's amazing spike was thinking on his feet man he's like look my, my, my film is coming out i need this thing to and in fact Wow, you did a really great job because the album beat the film. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. It's but you know, to point. your point about plants and it being this sort of possibly one, you know, among his greatest work, but people kind of just not getting it. You know what I mean? It got it kind of got because, like you said, there's this era. There's 
you know, this, this golden era where he's sort of had at this like creative apex from seven, you know, 70 to 76 or wherever people want to, you know, start it. But, you know, certainly um, with the pinnacle being for people, you know, songs in the key of life. And then there's this three year gap right. between songs and plants. And so I think that but he's not, he's not, he's just, he just hasn't done a studio album because he's working with, he's off the wall and, you know, all the other artists that he's working with. Right. right? Well, we, well, we know over time that Stevie just takes his time and puts out a record when he feels it's right for it to come out. Um, exactly. but, but one thing I say is during that time, that was a rough time for Black artists. The, the late, late 70s? 70s? The late 70s, early 80s was a rough time and it was hard to fit in the mold of what would be commercial music for radio and charting and all that because the sound was changing disco was permanent and it ended they killed it and 1980 was that transitional year where you know you know michael jackson was like the saving grace Quincy Jones Productions was like the saving grace. But if you didn't fit in that disco mold and you couldn't progress to the new era, you were kind of lost. Mm. It was really hard to get. A lot of artists fell off or went unnoticed during that time because um, music was and the scene and the industry was changing. So in a way, maybe... Stevie, the Plants album, apart from "Someone You Love," it was it could where where would you fit a record like that? It was it was so experimental. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Wow, that's such an important takeaway. You're right. There, I mean, because even if you know things weren't in that predicament, I think it's it's it 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 just remains an album that you can't exactly categorize. Like, and I think that's the what you described. Experimental is the perfect umbrella for it because you could call it so many things. But you know, like you said, inside of that record are all these prototypes and all of these um, sort of progenitors of what would come a little bit later. And then, you know, of course he puts out Hotter Than July the following year. I think Hotter Than July is 80, right? Hotter Than July was 80, yes. Yeah, so I think he, you know, for folks who were kind of like with the with the plant soundtrack, for those who were kind of like, you know, we waited three years for this, you know, um, sadly they're lost. Um, I think he gave them what they we're looking for with right. Hotter Than July. Yeah. And then in 83, I just remembered uh, this movie, The Outsiders, that I've never seen, but I was just in researching to kind of talk to you about anything that had to do with film and, and Stevie. There's a song on The Outsiders soundtrack. The Outsiders was with like Ralph Macchio and Matt Damon and um, it was directed by Francis Ford Coppola, who I only knew from like God, the Godfather movies and stuff like that. But Stevie has a song on the soundtrack called Stay Gold. Oh, right. That's right. Yeah. Wow. Right? Wow. And yeah. it's funny, I had to go back. My first time hearing Stay Gold was on Natural Wonder, which was a live album that Stevie did in, in 97. Not having no idea that it was from the soundtrack of this like cult following 
movie. So I had to go back and listen to it. And then fun fact, Stevie co-writes it with Francis Ford Coppola's dad, who had written some of the, the Godfather score, which is like some of the greatest, you know, score music or most famous and revered. I love the Godfather score. But so then there's that like one-off song. And then the following year, 84, there's the woman in red. Right. Which produced probably the biggest anthemic commercial using anthem being redundant with anthem but i just call to say i love you i mean uh, how many times <laughs> did we I mean, hear that song <laughs> i mean i mean we were talking about that earlier i feel like i heard it every day for like two years that song was just it was just ad nauseum just you know and it was it was it was sort of sappy you know kind you know um but it was this huge hit he wins an oscar right for, for best original best original song something like that um yeah i just called to say i love you who knew who very knew? 80s very 80s but then it also had don't drive drunk yes 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 now it's interesting because I don't even think that song had anything to do with the film. Yeah. I'm because curious it, to know if maybe that was like a, an early PSA for people driving drunk at the time. Exactly. I always thought that because I'm like, okay. And I, I admittedly, I've never seen the woman in red in full. I've only seen like little pieces of it. I know, you know, this beautiful woman and Gene Wilder, who I more so knew from like Richard Pryor and stuff like that. But I never, right. You know, I never saw the woman in red. So I was like, oh, this is so weird. Mothers Against Drunk Driving. But like you said, mad, you know, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, that was huge in the 80s. And, you know, yeah. that was like, this is your brain. This is your brain on, brain dr on it was drugs. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was all that era. And so, um, and that album also features, heavily features Dionne Warwick, which is probably the only time that I can think of that we really hear them working to get, together. well, that's what Friends are for. Right, which was a little later. Mm -hmm. right? That was 84 or 85 even. I think 85, I think, yeah. I think it was 85, yeah. 85. Um, but yeah, we mentioned, we talked about It's You earlier, Ooh. that duet. It's Ooh. a beautiful duet. Man, that, that's the one. Yeah. Oh, so right, because so, I was talking to Spina about that tune and that particular little line that boo -doo -doo -doo, doo -doo 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 -doo, and I want you to share with our audience what you were you you were saying to me about that line. Well, well, that line in that song to me really represents an era of soft rock songwriting because you hear a lot of that type of stuff when you listen to like uh, artists like Christopher Cross. You know, maybe even some Steely Dan or some, you know, uh, Dewey Brothers, you know, with that era. I had a conversation yeah. with, with Greg Philigains, uh not too long ago, and he was like one of the most prominent session musicians during that time. And, um, you know, he was part of Toto at one point. He toured with them. Yeah. And he, yeah, absolutely. And we all know him from the Quincy Jones stable, but. Sure. He played on, um, I keep forgetting, for Michael McDonald. Greg is just, he is just, we he's can do a whole. He was, 
yeah, he's special. He's special. He's special. special. Right. But yeah, that line was such a typical, I mean, there's a possibility that Stevie knew that and was reflecting on that. Because don't think for a minute that he doesn't get influenced by stuff that he hears too and puts it in his own music. Exactly. No, that makes total sense. Yeah, that, that song, I mean, if you guys are not familiar with that soundtrack, it's Love, Light and Flight. Oh, that well, that's soundtrack. the one. That's the one. That's the one. That's the jam from that album. Ooh. All day long. It really, really is. And when you think about, I feel like, and it's so fun. Wait, do I have that right? Yes. Here's, here's why I get confused sometimes. Love, Light and Flight Okay, so the Woman in Red soundtrack is 84, and then In Square Circle comes out in 85. Love, Light, and Flight could have easily been on In Square Circle, and they come out so close, and I'm always like, wait, did that come out on that? But I'm pretty sure Love, Light, and Flight is the, the Woman in Red soundtrack. Oh, yeah, actually. definitely it is. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And by, and then, you know, so he, he in, in a way, you know, whereas with his first soundtrack, um, he's a, a little bit maybe alienated, and that might be an over an overstatement, but a little alienated artistically from his his audience. But then his next soundtrack is sort of like a it gives you hints of what's to come with In Square Circle, which I think was a much which was a bigger obviously a much bigger success. And then he's got Hotter Than July and all that. But just and speaking of um, a soundtrack that sort of had a different effect you know, because it was much different from the plant soundtrack. This, this soundtrack had hits, you know, it had, you know, the PSA, you know, it had love, light, flight. I just called to say, I love you. It's, you know, it's his, it's a, it's a, it's a great soundtrack. It's kind of, it's kind of really his comeback. It was a big yes. comeback. For yes. Him. Which is, yeah, that's true. It's interesting. Um. So, yeah, I was, I was saying that, you know, um, Stevie kind of wraps up the 80s in 87 with characters, but that's not exactly true because he does uh, his first soundtrack work with Spike Lee. Right. Uh, on School Days. Yes. Which is yeah. the year after, it's 88. Yep. Which, funny enough, for a long time, I always felt like that song, um, I Can Only Be Me, uh, which features Keith John on, on on vocals, it always felt like a Stevie song when I heard it back then. For, you know, <laughs> yeah. for years, for years, I didn't realize that uh, <laughs> it was actually a Stevie composition. That's so crazy, but it made so much sense. You know, when I really when I put two and two together, and then you, you know, just produced and written by Stevie, it, it all makes sense. The chord structure and the arrangement and everything, even the way Keith sounds, he sounds like Stevie on that song. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I had school days on VHS when I was, you know, a kid when it was, you know, when it came out on VHS and I used to rewind that song over and over and over again. Cause I didn't have the soundtrack you know, probably wasn't even aware that there was a soundtrack to the movie, you know, explicitly. And so I just used to rewind the VHS over and over. Cause like you said, it just, it's such a beautiful song. Um, I think it's just voice and piano and just the, like you said, Keith, he has that, that Stevie-ish sound and Keith John, of course, um, saying, 
or maybe even still sings with Stevie on the road. I don't know if he still does, but yeah, he does. He still he does. does. Oh wow. Yeah. yeah. I think that's like his he's kind of like the Nathan Watts of the singers. Like he stays, he's his bona fide, you know, back no matter how many times he switches up the, the, the women background singers he remains i think there may have been only one time where in recent years where i noticed he wasn't there but um but he wasn't replaced by another man so wow he, he stays he's been and it's, i think it may have started around the time of hotter than july wow may have started, may have started around then and you know what um i didn't know until the concert, the Songs in the Key of Life concert, um, that Keith John actually comes from a family, a musical family. His father was an R&B singer from the 50s, 60s, Little Willie John. What? Yep. And his auntie uh, was Mabel John, who was part of the Stax artist roster. And she made a uh, a funky R&B record that I love called It's Catching. <clears throat> um, I have it on a seven inch, but really dope song. Uh, but yeah, he, oh. he has a family background. Stevie mentioned it. He mentioned it in the in the show. And I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. I had no idea. That's, that's wild. So I wonder, so because Keith John and, and Stevie have to be um, well, near the same age. What's crazy about this too is uh, <laughs> going back to Stevie's legacy. If you think about how long he's been recording, he's been recording as long as Little Willie John was out. Like, <laughs> you know right, and that you, part. <laughs> yeah, like he was a young buck, and Little Willie John was probably in his twenties at the time, and they, you know, they may have crossed paths. In the early 60s, who knows? You know, we don't. I, I, that's something I'd love to, to do a little history on and find out. Right? But uh, it's crazy. It's crazy. But but it didn't even stop with um, the 80s. Didn't stop with Keith John with School Days. Uh, Keith John actually recorded it on uh, Do the Right Thing. Really? Yep. It's a tune called Why Don't We Try. Oh, you're right. You are right. I forgot about that tune. Who else is on that track? Um, Gerald Albright mm -hmm. is on that. Which is interesting, too, the fact that he actually recorded something that Stevie had nothing to do with. And there aren't too many Keith John recordings out there. So, you know, I, I always felt like he's someone who deserved to have had, uh, you know, his own career yeah absolutely and there's actually a beautiful video of on youtube where stevie is performing i can only be me i've only found one recording of stevie actually singing the tune um but that's that's worth you know googling as well just to hear stevie sing this tune but keith john does an incredible job um and it fits so beautifully in what's happening in the scene of the movie too um, the yes, you know, I, I always thought that was really dope that he was featured in the film, sitting in the staircase singing that song. You know, the, I don't really think besides Tisha Campbell, like, you know, all of the artists that performed on the soundtrack didn't really get a feature like that. So that yeah. was kind of a special moment.
Yes, exactly. What, what is the beginning of you and Spike Lee's relationship? You know, can you share a bit how Spike and you and Spike came to know each other and how you've built this bond over time? It all started around the time of Michael Jackson's passing in 2009. Um, Spike Lee uh, wanted to start throwing these big outdoor events honoring Michael Jackson um, for his birthday and his life. <clears throat> and at that point in time, I was already doing my Soul Slam parties, the Michael Jackson versus Prince events here. It started here in New York and they've taken on a life of its own everywhere, all over the world. And he was looking for a DJ and I came up as a referral by a few people. Q-Tip was one of them. And, you know, they were all like, you need to get this guy because he's been doing this already. And first one happened, the first event, BK Loves MJ happened in August 2009. And it was 50,000 people in Prospect Park outdoors. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and it was. 50, <laughs> oh, my gosh. 50,000. And I think I, I can honestly say at that point, that was the biggest crowd I've ever played for in my life. <laughs> a lot of people spend <laughs> in, in Brooklyn. <laughs> oh my gosh. There's no borough like Brooklyn. I'm sorry. We just we just come out and show out. Wow. Yeah, especially for, especially for Mike. Especially for yeah. Mike. It was really special. It was really special. So over time, you know, of course that party continues and then Spike really uh, trusted in me f uh, for my musical selections and diversity. And stuff. he's very spontaneous. A lot of times he'll call out songs that he wants me to play, um, which I, I don't think an average DJ would just have right. on deck like that. <laughs> a, good, a good example is uh, Here Comes the Sun by the Beatles. Mm -hmm. uh, he asked me to play that didn't prep me, didn't tell me to bring it or anything, but um, it rained on that first BK Loves MJ party and the sun came out. Oh my God. And he asked me, do you have, here comes the somebody Beatles. I was like, yes, dialed it up, played it for the moment. And the, you know, the irony there is, you know, Michael owned Beatles catalog, so it matched. That's it, it right. Was, at that oh. time, it, it wasn't it wasn't given up yet. <laughs> back to <laughs> back to the back to uh, you know the the labels or whatever. So um, that was the connection there. And you know, there was there's been so many instances like that. Like you know, I've been doing a lot of his industry parties, a lot of his release events for films and stuff. He flew me to Con for Black Klansmen, for the Black Klansmen wow. uh, prim premiere. And I, I played that after party. So, so I think it's, it's a matter of trust and we get along really well. He's, he can be very demanding. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I, yes. I think that, yeah, you know, and I, I feel like um, we have a great rapport. Like I know how to handle him and vice versa. You know, I don't get caught up in the, and the madness, the spikely madness that can occur. Right, know. right. I understand him. I understand him. You know what I'm saying? For him to be a, as great as he is, you know, he can't take no shorts. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> it yeah. Is what it is. Yeah. You, I would imagine you can't have the thinnest of skins um, working with Spike. No. <laughs> but. Um, no. Gotta have thick skin. A lot of patience. 
but what seems what seems to shine through with with him um evidenced by a lot of his mainstay relationships and including yours which has really you know just kind of grown over the time that I've seen you guys together and 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 the the closeness is that once like you said that trust is there it's like he he doesn't let you go like your family at that point it, you know and and so that that feels evident too so like you know the the ornery sort of um you know you can take the 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 maybe the harshness because there's it feels like there's just so much love underneath also of course yeah he's very loyal once you're locked in you got to do something real crazy for him to divorce you. So, <laughs> right, right. And then he, and then you were also featured in his two documentaries, uh, Bad Twenty Five, and um, my favorite one, the uh, the uh, Off the Wall. Off the Off the Wall, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic, yeah, yeah. A great look, definitely a great look, and well deserved. Well, well, well deserved. Thank you. Uh, and then he doesn't release another album until Jungle Fever which comes out in 1991. Right. And I'll be honest, when that album came out, apart from uh, Gotta Have You, I didn't listen to that whole album as an album initially. Mm-hmm. Not until I started doing The Wonderful Events. I got back into it. Um, but when I listen to it now, to me, it feels like his... One thing about him, I'd say, is he always tries to find a way to stay relevant sonically. Mm-hmm. And he was definitely throwing his nod at the New Jack Swing era, um, which for that album, I think he definitely got that off. Um, for the, the album that would come after that, maybe not so much. <laughs> Conversation <laughs> piece, but... I think that's you know that's another conversation for right another day. taboo uh, to love though Woo. taboo to love is amazing yeah uh but no i think there's amazing moments on jungle fever yes there's amazing moments we have if she breaks your heart oh my gosh now that that's a song that i wasn't familiar with um his his co star so to speak on that song um Kimberly Shirley Brewer Kimberly Brewer right yeah um but it, it's so interesting whenever I hear Stevie do a duet outside of uh the Dionne Warwick duet he has this signature thing that he loves this sound because she kind of invokes a little bit of that Sarita sound to me when you listen to If She Breaks Your Heart it gives me Sarita she does sound like Sarita and Sarita's mm-hmm. on the album too she is so, so let's, before we kind of get into the album, like track for track, right? Help me set up the 90s, right? So this is the top of the 90s. This is, you know, 91, early, it's spring 91. Um, you know, Boys to Men and Jodeci are, you know, in fact, okay, so I did say that Stevie closes out the 80s with, uh, with characters, but he does do a duet with Whitney in 90, on the I'm Your Baby Tonight album, um, this song called We Didn't Know. Which is amazing. Oh, it's such an underrated song. Why don't people talk about that song? Ah, that's a good point. I think it just flew over everyone's head. It's, yeah. it's, it's really good. It's so good. I mean, I know we get caught up in the whole, like, cause this is, this is sort of like Whitney's like arrival into 
the urban charts, you know, she's like, you know, she's not how will I know, you know, Babyface and L.A. Reid are producing this record and maybe that became the theme or something. And but that is such a great it's such a great record. They do it on Arsenio Hall. And wow, I got to see that. I yeah, don't, I don't know. it's crazy. I yeah, they they perform it together because she does. Um, I think she might do All the Man That I Need or one of those great like ballads off of I'm Your Baby Tonight. And then she's singing it. Stevie's not on stage. I don't want to spoil it for you, but like she's Stevie's not on stage yet. And, you know, he sings the second verse. So she's singing. And then you just hear him from afar and he comes out in the crowd just like they lose it. it. They freaking lose (laughs) it. But so so help me set up the 90s, because by 1991 and Stevie's been in the business so long that he's only 41 by 90 well yeah he's only about 40 41 years old by 91 but he's he's kind of like the older cat in the game in the way in a way because the sound had gotten so youthful again you know you have like these young boy bands like hip-hop like you said new jack swing so how does stevie fit in the context of what's happening at the turn of the 90s well you know when i think about songs like gotta have you i think that's the closest thing he could get to the times at that time you know in terms of like something that could get played on the radio something that djs might get into um but i think it in context of or in light of what was happening at the time if you weren't hip-hop or new jack swing it was rough Mm-hmm. And, and what always saves Stevie in every album, no matter what's going on, are his ballads. And these three words takes you out. Oh my God. Every single time. It takes you out every single time. So no matter what, he'll push through and try his best. This is my opinion, of course, but sure. um, and make sure your show is is deep as well. It's a great song. Very, very deep. You know what's interesting about "Make Sure You're Sure"? That track. So Stevie has always, I feel like, from a little kid, there was always a jazz element, and you know, even one of the albums is called like when he's like maybe what 11 or 12 oh, the jazz and soul of stevie wonder right? exactly the jazz and soul of stevie wonder and jazz so it's it's always been a part of him and i feel like in particular with even if you listen to scene so long on uh, music of my mind there's you know he's on brushes you know on that like it has this like it has this it's bluesy in a way kind of bluesy a little bit it's bluesy too yeah it has this like trio you know this sort of in a in a in a quiet you know jazz nook after hours jazz trio smoke filled exactly it has that that feeling to it and make sure you're sure has that same you know brushes and you know that kind of jazz thing but even fun day the, the song that opens the album he plays a solo he plays an actual sort of like a jazzy almost giant steppy and it's in you know um harmonically this little you know ditty that he plays at the end of um of fun day which is probably my favorite song on the on the album but these three words it's almost like 
because the same words I, I just called to say I love you these three words it's the same words but but junk but um these three words is not sappy it's this beautiful like R&B ballad I mean shout out to Nathan Watts because the bait like it's just so it's very it's urban you know it has like a, a urban feel I remember like listening to the top eight at eight when that album came out and it, it was like number one like it was like it was like forever my lady and like these three words it was huge that yeah I think that ballad really rounds the album out especially after Jungle Fever, the theme song, which is my least favorite. Yes. <laughs> and I think that could be the reason why at the time I didn't get into the album because I was not really feeling the song. Yeah. You know, I wasn't yeah. really, I couldn't, I couldn't get into it. But in studying his music and really trying to understand him as an artist, you can't just pick, you can't like nitpick. You have to listen to whole whole albums and compositions and in this context to see, from beginning to end to really get a grip on the whole thing, the whole message. And on every album, he may have a dull moment. I mean, he, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a song on, on a Hotter Than July that I'm not crazy about. There's a song, there's, on every album. There Do you want to tell me which one it is? Since we're, since we're, since we, since we're here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna, <laughs> I don't put you on the spot, but like, um, you know what song grew on me and I love? Um, Ain't Gonna Stand For It. It's, it's, but, it's, I really like that, that country twang song. Well, that was a boogie. That was, that got airplay. It was a single. It felt good. After, like, he loosened up that country twang you know, by the time the break comes. So, you know, he let it go. <laughs> you, right, right, right. It's all good after that. Right, exactly. On the, by the time we get to, whoa, 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 we're, we're, we're good. Right. But no, I, I'd say, um, and I'm not saying it's a bad song. It's just sure. not my favorite. Cash in Your Face was never like a song I really, really like. Really? Not really. Not really. Not compared to the rest of the record. That's yeah. my Yeah. Yeah. And did I hear you say you love me was is kind of, you know, it's kind of it's all he should have done the country twang on that song. <laughs> <laughs> did I hear you say you love me? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that would have been more appropriate. for that. Right. But you know what's so interesting? The two songs you named. Um, did I hear you say you love me? A cash in your face. They have the bomb segue into. The next, so like, of course, the segue from Did I Hear You Say You Love Me to All I Do is like one of the best segues ever because it, it, it's kind of has that, that, um, that Sergeant Peppers, that what's going on, like it just flows well, right into the next it, song. It's funny you should say that because uh, I asked him about the segue thing and he credits the Beatles. Get out of here. That's that was his inspiration for connecting songs on albums on beat and it started with where i'm coming from that was the first one he did that with which that album is definitely a nod to like the whole beatles flower power if you listen to how that song was produced and the instrumentation on it and the sounds he used it's the beatles 
not all of it, but some of it. Some the of way it, it's yeah. the way it starts out, you know. Yes. That's Atari kind of boom. Yep. Boom. You know, it's funny because that I would when I came to you, I was like, so so that album is turning 50 this year because it came out 71. Right. And I was like, when I was thinking about which album, I ultimately landed on Jungle Fever just because your connection to Spike and I just wanted to do this one. But I was like, we could do either one of these. So I tossed it around. So well, we should come back for that one. Let's do that. That album to me really is, you know, everyone talks about uh, Music of My Mind being the first album where he was able to produce himself and give direction and not have much interference from the label and Barry Gordy and telling him what to do. But um, I feel like where I'm coming from should be included in that because that was a that was a, to me that's his first concept album. Yes, and sonically, he was advanced on that as well because I'm I'm a producer so I'm always listening to production and you know instrumentation and he's using Moog bass on that. He's you know it's it was quite experimental for 1970. Oh man, absolutely. I would I would have to totally agree with you. I would love to unpack that album with you. That's easily one of my favorite Stevie Wonder albums. Um that well, I, I, I'm not even gonna keep going with that. We we're just gonna put a we're gonna put a pin in that and come back to it. But yeah. um yeah, I but okay, so we went to Hotter Than July, we went we went everywhere, but um same with me with Jungle Fever. I don't think I listened to it in its entirety until the early, oh no, let me get this timing right, the late 90s. And it was because of a song that's not even on the soundtrack, but it is in the end credits of the movie. And it's the song called Feeding Off the Love of the, the Land. Land. Right. And that song is in the in and Spike's got the lyrics going across, you know, at the end of the movie. And it's so crazy because I figured, well, the song is in the movie. It must be part of the soundtrack. I get the Jungle Fever soundtrack. It's nowhere to be found. So what do I do? I recorded it. Me and my friend, my best friend from high school, who's another Stevie head. We record it from the TV and put it on cassette because I'm like, I need this song in my life. Now here's something I'm, I don't, I'm hoping you can give me some context here. So that song, here's another Beatles reference. That song was a song he donated to George Harrison and his wife for like some type of Romanian relief album or something like that, right? So, and it's just him and piano. It's just him and solo piano. For the spike for Jungle Fever, Bill Lee, Spike Lee's dad, who's an incredible arranger, he puts these, yes. Can we just, yeah, let's just pause for Bill Lee for a second. And he puts this incredible string arrangement around the song. So here's the thing. I think that recording of that song is from like the 70s. I don't think that that's new Stevie because it doesn't even sound like the same. When you listen to Jungle Fever and one of the things that's so incredible about his voice on Jungle Fever is that I feel like he's 
in his vocal prime in a way. Like he's, he sounds different on Jungle Fever. Like he had, like his voice is a little, a little, I don't want to say twangier, but it's a little, you know, his upper register. Yeah, I was different. just about to say that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's where he's at all the way upper register. Almost yeah. like he's stretching it a little bit. Yes, exactly. And so he doesn't sound how he sounds on feeding off the love of the land. So I, I feel like, I feel like those are seventies vocals. I want you, I want you to tell me what you think though. I, I want to defer to you on that. I think so, but that's something I would definitely have to. I'm going to ask Spike about that because I'm I'm curious as well. Please do, yeah. Uh, I I um I actually have feeding off the level of the land on a Japanese mini compact disc, like a small one of those small ones. Uh huh. Oh so wow! So it did come out on the single. Okay. Vinyl single, CD single, but it's not for some reason it's not on the soundtrack, which is really strange. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try to find out what's up. Do you remember what year that mini disc is from? Um, About? it has to be. It's ninety one. Yeah. Oh, so it came out on mini disc the same time as the soundtrack. Yeah, out. with "Gotta Have You" is actually on the single as well. It's oh, on, no kidding. Yes, it's on the single with "Gotta Have You." The Japanese always give you what you need, like you know, because when I tried to get. I couldn't find that song anywhere. It was years. And then when I found it, it was on this Romania relief uh, thing. And I put it on. I'm like, well, where's the strings? I mean, I still loved it because it's just Stevie and solo piano. Yes. But I was I wanted to hear it with that full lush Bill Lee thing on it. So I had to end up taping it off the TV. That's interesting. I, I need to revisit it and make sure that the version that did because you know how soundtracks goes and scores go. A lot of times things are overdubbed for the film. And then when you listen to the recording, it's stripped down. Yeah. But, but uh, the song, Feeling Off the Love of the Land, actually was a bonus cut on all the single releases. I'm looking at the vinyl release right now, and it's on there too. Oh, okay. Now, when, but that came out not that long ago, right? It was 91. It's all 91. Oh, that's all 91. Yeah, it's all 91. So now we got to do some compare and comparison. I had to go check the film. I haven't seen that film in years. Same. And it's not yeah. on like Prime because I yeah. wanted to watch it before talking to you. It's yeah, not me on too. Netflix. <laughs> right? Me too. I looked for it. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I was like, I can't find it anywhere. It's not even on YouTube, which is good. So go go ahead, Spike. I mean, he is, you know, was, you know, meant as so many of us, of, of them guys, uh, mentored by Prince. So I get it. Like, you know. Control your content. Control your content, man. Like I, I get it, but um, I, I'm, I'm gonna have to just buy it on DVD and then buy a DVD player. Um, but yeah, but that's a beautiful song that closes the film, and so we have some, 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 some homework as it pertains to that song. Um, where does Stevie fit? Because you have, I think about like Jodeci, right? Who Dave, who kind of like comes out, I think 91, if I'm not mistaken, not in the 90, 91, I think it's 91. And they would eventually cover lately, right? So Stevie is still rippling in terms of his influence and his, you know, as a vocalist, he's like the preeminent archetype that I feel like all of R&B is sort of chasing in one way or another. But how does he 
how like how do we place him in terms of the 90s or do we is that even necessary it's almost like aretha in the 80s i think he's a force by himself that doesn't need to fit and i, I know one thing about him is he never really wanted to go hip-hop or be known as a hip-hop artist though he has had few moments where he's trying to rap and that kind of thing <laughs> right but he would never really take on a full ahead hip-hop record for his own recording he, he made guests on an artist record like common or whatever but um he never wanted to be known as that um i think that he made so many strides and broke so many molds throughout the 70s and 80s that by the time the 90s came around and i think that's part of the reason why he you know he doesn't really rush to put albums out he's always trying to create these he's a perfectionist and he wants to create these masterpieces regardless of what's happening he may throw a few tunes on the on the record that's a nod to what's happening at the present time but i don't know if he really cares about i you know let me take that back. Um, I know he prides himself in singing, songwriting, producing, arranging, all of those things that he's been known for on his colossal albums. Um, and he likes staying relevant. Maybe not so much trying to fit into the present, but being recognized by the present. Mm. Um, he was so far ahead of himself and I feel like by the time the 90s hit we it, it caught up like we we caught up to him yes we caught yeah. up to him and then wow. he was you know because he was ahead of technology ahead of you know he had all the the synthesizers and drum machines and used them way before anyone touched them and we caught up to him. We we did we we started doing what he had already done 15, 20 years prior. So how do you combat that? Like, you know, right. how do you what do you do about that? You just have to do you at that point. And that that's what I would think. You just do you and wherever it falls, it falls, and however it's received, it's received. But I'm sure in his soul. He still wants to be that dude on every record. Right. No matter what. Yeah. And at some point, you either got to get help and get some cats to come in and be open to doing that. And I'm not sure if he is. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. I'm it's not like sure if he Stevie, is. Like, but I think what you said is so profound in that Stevie was so ahead of himself. Um. And I remember you saying, you know, he was so ahead of himself and everyone else. <laughs> he's so right. ahead of, he's so ahead of everyone. And then, you know, like you said, you, you meet, we, we met him, but then how do you not become almost an imitation of yourself or like, right. how do you, how That's do you, you know, you know, avoid that? And it's interesting because with this soundtrack, like you said, it, he'll give you like one or two things. It's interesting because like, gotta have you. It's funny you say that that was the one that was a single, which I didn't know, you know, and um, kind of was the one that people felt because it kind of has a remember the time feel, you know, pre remember the time, but like it has that 
I could see those even like blending well together in a set, you know, but like the, even just the moodiness of the changes on Gotta Have You, it's very, it feels inner visions-y to me, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's, there's another song, um, uh, I think it's Each Other's Throat. And he does that thing where he goes, ha, 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 ha. Oh, and right. I was like, oh, he's giving like maybe your baby vibes on here. So he's, it's almost like he's saying, and again, like, just like you were saying, this is totally me. Like I have no clue, right? But it almost is like he's giving nods to himself in the 90s. Like he's like, I'm here in the 90s, like, but like, I'm still Stevie Wonder. <laughs> Right, right. And and for his loyal following that know him for certain things, that could be his way of saying, hey, I still got you. Here, here take this. Yeah. This little riff here. Take this. Remember this? <laughs> right. That could be his way of doing that, too. Exactly. I mean, that's what I feel when I heard it, because I'm like, oh, this, you know, this this is taking me back to like. 72 73 like just you know with with some of those you know progressions there's a couple of other really great songs i think i go sailing uh i really like chemical love i've grown to like that and lighting up the candles which is kind of like it the album ends really strong so it starts with this sort of new jack vibe there's some jazziness there's it feels very 90s in a way and then in the middle of the album you have this beautiful ballad with make sure you're sure and I feel like he kind of just stays on that vibe a little bit um but with lighting up the candles he just that upper register that we were talking about he just takes that album out he wants for nothing vocally on this record like in terms of his falsetto it's it's I don't even know if it's his falsetto he's just way up there but he's it's so strong <laughs> yeah one thing i'll say about stevie is he knows how to leave you with an impact he knows mm-hmm. how to he knows how to format the album mm-hmm. and tell the story through the album and you know i think lighting up the candles is it ends the album really strongly Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's good for that. If you think about last songs, if you think about evil, if you think about uh, he's Mister Know It All, if you think about like he he knows he knows what he's doing. Sunshine <laughs> in their eyes. Sunshine in their eyes. Yeah, he knows how to leave you with different kinds of because every album ends differently. Uh, but he knows how to leave you wanting more, or if, you know. Wow, you know, I never exactly thought about that specifically. But wow. Yeah. When I think about, um, you know, even happy birthday, just ending right. with that big anthem, you yep. know, or the mad song on the end of when it just ends with the car crash, you know, right. the album, you know, it has it, like every album. Yeah, that's true. Has he's like tells, this, he's telling a story. He's telling he's oh. he's telling a story. Mm-hmm. And I feel like lighting up the candles, it's such a because, you know, as we were saying earlier, there's this this theme about, you know, race relations and interracial stuff and Italians and Blacks and all that kind of stuff. But then there's that, that other piece of how, you know, crack, you know, sort of ravaged our community. And you, you almost feel like that song is like a sad, you know, we, you know, um, 
Samuel L. Jackson's character, who is Wesley Snipes, you know, drug addicted brother, you know, he, he dies tragically in the film. And it, it, it kind of is like a salve for what was happening, because by 91, we were still. Well, we traveling. were. Deep in it. Yeah, it was rough. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that those times also speak to the music that was being made. You know, so an album like this for a soundtrack like this. Like, how do you tell, how do you tell the story of the times? Yeah. And I, think, I think overall he, he did a really good job. Agreed. Yeah. He, I, I think so too. I think it, de- so, you know, it's interesting because since that album, he's only put out maybe four other studio albums. And we're talking about an album that came out 30 years ago, which I can't believe Jungle Fever is 30, but that's a whole nother story. But like, he only put out a few more records uh, within the last 30 years. So then, you know, we have Conversation Piece that comes out in 95. And then I think the Natural Wonder live album in 97. Far as I know, that's it for the 90s. Was Natural Wonder 97? Or 95? No, Conversation Piece is 95. Yo, Natural Wonder is 95. Wow. It's 95. Wowzers. Oh, I, sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah, but I'm tripping. Like, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> we we want more, but he doesn't give us more. <laughs> exactly, right? And, and, and I mean, that that's the thing. Like, when, when you're Stevie Wonder, who has had the type of creative output he had between let's even just say like from 70 to 80, let's just round out that decade. It begs the question, like, what do you do after you've done what's never been done and you're the greatest at, right? you know? Which is why we can't really complain or have anything to say (laughs) when he takes forever to put out a new record because he's given us so much already. And the scary part is, he doesn't stop recording. He just doesn't put it out. Right. He, a- man, I went to his studio in 2012. He invited me out. What? And he played me some joints that I, to this day, I'm just like holding my head in disbelief. Like, why is he not putting this stuff out? Mind blowing, but no album. And I'm sure, much like Prince, he just keeps recording, keeps, he has hundreds thousands of things in the can right i I don't know he's he's a he's a mad scientist and you know and i do know he has other things that he does too a lot of humanitarian work that we don't know about he has a super extended family and a lot of responsibility but creatively i i I can't call it i don't really know yeah but he he records he has material i think my opinion is that he really needs um, to trust in someone that can sit with him and just be like, listen, this is dope. This is dope. Package this, touch this up, throw this away. Don't put this out, whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think he's so used to doing it all by himself for a long time that there's not much room for him in his mind to 
allow for those opportunities. That's my opinion. That's just my personal opinion. At one point, I wanted to be that guy, but I gave up. I gave, <laughs> right. I gave, I gave up on it. I just gave up. <laughs> well, you know, that was going to be my question. I was going to be like, so did you, uh, you know, and he is like, we cannot forget he is El Toro Negro. He's a tourist, man. Like when you, when they're set in a way that they do things, it's, it's very difficult to get a tourist to, to shift, to shift, you know, so, yeah. but um, wow, Spina, I mean, I just, I'm just so grateful to you for for coming on and, and talking to me about this record, but just also talking to me, giving me so much context and education around Stevie. Um, I feel like every time I talk to you, I just learn so much and I'm just incredibly grateful. Um, he said it here and I'm not editing it out. So I will be circling back about that other Stevie Wonder album. I would love to talk to you about that yeah, at a certain time. We got to, we have to. We got to do that. I mean, it's, it's, um, I think in July it'll be 50. So. Wow. We got to, we got to deal with that one. And, um, you know, it's just really fun to, to, um, to think about Stevie in the, in the time when like, I'm listening to, you know, Black Moon and Whitney and, you know, it's, it's, it's before, you know, Bad Boy and all that, but, you know, the early 90s and then Stevie kind of pops up. It's like a, it's like a little flower that, you know, it's like <laughs> a surprising thing that happens, you know? Um, yeah, it's, it's a special, it's a special album. It's, it has its place, you know? It, yeah. It, it definitely has its place. And just Stevie in cinema itself, just, it really has a place. So I'm just honored and, and so grateful. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Uh, you know, I, I, from the time we met and you asked me about a really early Stevie Wonder single, um, forgetting the name of it right now, but- Purple Raindrops. There you go. There you go. When you brought that up, I was like, okay, she's a Stevie head and we're, we're, we're good. <laughs> we're, we are official, officially good right now. This is Exactly, good. exactly. Not too many people that, you know, are that, that, that deep with Stevie's catalog like that. So, yeah. Well, you know, coming from you. That that's a deep honor. That's a that's a heck of a validation. And it's it's been so fun to, you know, know you personally as my friend so that I can have I can have these geek out moments about Stevie and like you over get it. You know what I mean? And then every time I, I'm come to Wonderful, whether in quarantine or in person, I'm always like, what's that? What was that? I don't know this joint, but oh, like, okay, spin is showing out, you know, like you just, the, again, as I said in my intro, I just don't know many people who love music the way that you do. And so it's just always a learning experience, a spiritual experience, a sonic experience that it's special. Thank you. You're so welcome. What do you want to plug? Where can folks find you? I know people are going to be like freaking out about this one. So you want to drop some plugs? Yeah. So um, I'm on Apple Music on their Apple Music Hits channel every Friday. I just received a new time. So I think I'm going to be on at 8 p.m. Eastern every Friday from now on. 
Um, the show is called Here to Their Radio. That title is from my first album on BBE Records. Yes. And it's a journey. And this, there's a lot of themes so far. They've been great. I've done some specialty shows, um, anniversary shows for Earth, Wind & Fire, um, The Dude, which turned 40 this year. Yes. Uh, what else? So many. Shows have been going great. Is that where you talk to Phil and Gaines as well? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I just did a Rick James special. And oh, and this week, George Benson. It's the 45th anniversary of Breezin. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. That's such a, that's, oh, Spinner, that's amazing. Yeah. Are you, are you I'm excited? A, I'm very excited. I'm very excited. I'm a huge George Benson fan. Um, you do know George Benson singing on, on As, right? No, on Another Star at the end in the fade out. I did not know that. That's George singing in the fade out of Another Star. <laughs> Get the frick out of here. Yeah. <laughs> did not know that. I thought I knew every random person. Like, you know, that's Herbie. You know, that's, you know, I did not know that. Yes, that is Mr. Benson. Yeah. I have to listen to that immediately when we're done. <laughs> Imagine the energy in that room Man. with Bobby Humphrey and George Benson and whoever else was in there, like that, on that song. She's she sounds incredible. Like that 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 whole does that end the album? Well, no, no, because the bonus seven inch, I think, ends the album. The songs from that forty five. So I think. Um, so Ebony Eyes. Ebony Eyes and Saturn and uh, Easy Going Evening. I think Easy Going ends the album. Where does All Day Sucker fit? All Day Sucker is the first song on the flip side of the second. Yes. Of the, of the 45, the seven inch. It's on right. that bonus. It's on the bonus. All Day Sucker's on the, the little bonus as well. Yep. yep. Got it. Got it. But I didn't finish saying where you can find me. Um, you can oh, also. Yes. Right. So you can you can catch me on Twitch, uh, twitch.tv forward slash DJ Spinner BK every Thursday at 9 p.m. I do a slow jam set called Galactic Quiet Store. I show music videos and the slow jams range from your typical R&B classics, so, you know, uh, Quiet Storm classics. But I go into soul ballads. I play, I might throw in a doo-wop record I, and then I go, I take it to the 80s and I play like pop ballads. One night, and I show videos too. I show music videos. Um, Spando Ballet uh, to Midnight Star to Jill Scott to Frank McComb to, you know, Moonchild to Badu to like, it's, it just runs the gamut of smooth grooves and slow jams and it's all over the place and it's fun. What it does is it makes you really rethink doing your own slow jam thing because that is you you cannot compete with that like I put it on like I remember I wanted to do like a little blue light special thing I thought I wanted to till I came to that I was like oh girl do a little more homework <laughs> you know like like you you like it's just and I mean I'm it's you're just I didn't even yeah. know you were check checking it out. I had no idea. Oh, listen, when you play, help me, I think I'm, I said, let me throw this shoe at this TV. I'm done. Oh, he's I was like, he's playing Joni. 
Joni Mitchell, I'm all done. of that. I'm done. <laughs> I didn't even know. And then, <laughs> yeah. and then Journey, 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 Journey on Sundays yeah. at 3 p.m. on Sundays. And it, it is what it is. It's all over the place. But I, end, yeah. but I end up on the dance floor because dance music is special to me. Like, I think, you know, be, the way I was raised into this DJ community and clubbing and all that stuff, that's my church. So I'm just mm. trying, to, I'm trying to bring it back for the community and the, the dancers and the people that love to dance and that, that energy. I'm just trying to put it out. But it starts off with jazz and rare groove and soul and funk and boogie and it just builds and builds and builds until I'm like in the stratosphere and just I'm going crazy. It's it's insane. DJ Spinner, this was amazing. I had so much fun with you. Um, I hope you guys at home enjoyed listening. Um, All the Stevie heads, the DJ Spinner heads. Uh, If you're a fan of uh, Spike Lee and cinema and movie soundtracks, I hope that you had a a great time listening and thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Angelica Beener, and this is Milestones. We'll see you next time. Milestones with Angelica Beener is a production of WBGO Studios, theme music produced by Riley Glasper. Check out the rest of WBGO's podcast lineup at wbgo.org slash studios.